1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 15. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. Let me stop there. He's saying praise, recognition, acknowledgement is proper as long as it's in accordance with the Word of God. And he's saying that we not learn or to think of men above that which is written. We're not to make, we're to be careful of man worship. And he says that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? <coughs> now you are full. Now you are rich. Listen to this. You have reigned as kings without us. And I went to God, you did reign, that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed unto death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak. But ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and as the offscoring. The word for offscoring means the food scrapings off a plate. The offscoring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you. But as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus have I begotten you through the gospel. At least three times, Paul uses the phrase, these things. And I call your attention to verse 6, because we're going to look at verse 6 to 21, and what these things are. And the context of this is my title of our study tonight. He said that ye might... Learn in us. That you might learn in us. Did you know discipling, being a disciple, you're always learning? Did you know that a good servant is always learning? And Paul uses some holy sarcasm and some, saying some of the things as he characterizes the Corinthian believers. And I remind you this evening 
that the church at Corinth was a carnal church that was filled with envyings, strife, and divisions, judgmentalness, a critical spirit, which Paul addresses. And almost, you might say, as we read chapter 4, and I'm not going to get into that tonight. That's a whole different subject I could preach. But it was a me, we versus us, or you versus us mentality in that church. It was the church at Corinth adversarially against Paul and people in the ministry. And Paul, out of a broken heart, wrote chapter 4 to correct these terrible, terrible, sinful divisions. So tonight, we just want to put on a spirit of meekness. As Paul wrote to them, he writes to us, that you might learn in us. Father, bless your word. Use your word tonight to strike a chord in our hearts. To speak to us. To comfort us. To counsel us. I'm thankful this afternoon while I was taking some time to meditate on this a little bit for just some other additional thoughts that you gave me, which I probably don't have time to convey tonight. But Lord, I really need you in this message. My brothers and sisters in Christ really need you tonight. We really need to learn. We really need to be the disciples you want us to be. We really need to be the ministers of Christ, the under rowers that we really need to be. Feed our souls. Encourage us. Rebuke us where necessary. Love us, we pray. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated at home. Last week, I went a little bit longer than I expected, and I hope it was helpful to you, but I, I did a very extensive study of chapter 3, verse 16, to chapter 4, verse 5. If you did not watch last week's service, please go to the live stream to see it. Some very, very uh, needy and helpful things. In fact, I would really encourage you. It's probably a good idea just to revisit it again because there's a lot of content in that. We saw that Paul said in verses 16 to 17 of chapter 3 about the sacred structure of the church, that we are a holy temple. Secondly, <laughs> he spoke about in the midst of just uh, a people that were puffed up, because he uses the term puffed up three times in our passage. Uh, we saw that we have a substantial ministry. Paul made the statement, all things are yours. And thirdly, we saw Paul introduce chapter 4 by speaking about the fact that all of us are simple servants of God. Now, notice in chapter 4, verse 1, as we start back off again, he starts off with the phrase, let a man so account of us. Paul got a report. Chloe, the household of Chloe, came to him and gave him a report. And they said, Paul, you're probably going to be hurt by what we're going to tell you. But we need to let you know things, there are things happening in the church that are not, the church is not in the same shape as when you left it. And they told him the things going on. And he to, they told him about the personality struggles. And they told him about the followers of Apollos and the followers of Paul and the followers of Cephas and all that kind of stuff that was going on. And so as he's working his way through this, and you can appreciate 
the ministry of the Holy Spirit as, as he gives us the Word of God, he waits to chapter 4 and saying, let a man show account of us. Now Paul is basically is going to confront head on in a very loving manner and dealing with some hard heads in the church and some powerful personalities who basically acted like they ran the church. They posed themselves, and Paul used it. He was using sarcastic humor. He says, you are kings. And he said, we wish we were kings also. And he's going to deal with that tonight because Paul was criticized, despised, and undermined. But I want you to understand something. These people in that church, these brothers and sisters in Christ, were people that he led to Christ. These were people that he poured his life out to, that he poured his heart into, and he loved, and he cared for them. And behind his back and to his face, they said some very terrible things. And so Paul told them, look, the things you told me, they're a very small thing. Now let me tell you tonight, I said this last week, all of us, all of us, are at some point in time, and then some of us more, are going to be under the radar screen of judgment. And the test of your Christianity at that time, the metal that you really are, is going to be determined. Because the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And the Bible also says that a fool uttereth all his mind. What you say at that time, and even how you act, says a lot. And Paul helps us out in verse 3 when he says, he said here, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. And I just want to say, for some of us who are very temperamental, and our spirit gets riled up about things, we have to have the perspective of Paul, it's just a small thing. Don't let it bother you. It's a very small thing. And then later on, Paul talks about that he did. He was careful how he judged himself. He said, I judge not myself. That's something that's hard not to do. And he said, listen, I'm not going to be so overly introspective that I beat myself up. He says, I know I need to evaluate myself. But he says, you know what? What I really need to do is live my life and remind myself in verse 5 that the Lord's going to judge everything. And the Lord will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. And the Lord will make manifest the counsel of heart. And we've got to be very careful of judging the motives and kind of the spirit by which somebody else does something. Because the Bible says in verse 5, judge nothing. In fact, that's a command. That's a command. Therefore, judge nothing before the time comes until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsel of God. And then he said, at that time, every man shall have praise of God. And notice he said, God's going to make all things right. Now, in verse 6, he takes the admonishment he's been giving to a new level. He uses the phrase puffed up. How many of you ever saw a puffer fish? Puffer fish are amazing things. They either scare people away or to announce that they're coming and they're looking for, they're about ready to eat another smaller fish. And Paul said three times, verse 6, verse 18 and 19, these brethren, notice verse 6, they were puffed up one against another. Huh. I'm better than you. 
Huh. So what? Huh. I'm doing more than you. They were puffed up towards one another, and Paul says later on, they were puffed up towards Paul. Um, He says in verse 18, some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. They said, you're just hot air. You're not going to come. We can do what we want. And you've got to remember, chapter 4 is the sedge into chapter 5, which is a rough chapter. Paul just said they're puffed up. And brethren, I remind you tonight, only by pride, only by pride cometh contention. The root of our divisiveness and our people issues, when you boil it down, is pride. So Paul makes a strong statement in verse 6. To people he loved, people led to Christ, and who is concerned about their spiritual decline, he says that you might learn in us not to think of men about that which is written. He says that you might learn in us. Not thankful Paul did not have the spirit of this age. The spirit of this age is like this. I'm finished with you. I'm not going to deal with you. Paul comes to them, and this is why he was a great Christian. He wasn't a great Christian because of all the churches he started, albeit I'll say that that's a good thing. And he wasn't a great Christian because of all the people that got saved and discipled, albeit I'll say that's a good thing. And he wasn't a great Christian because of all the men called the ministry that were serving God and were pastors, albeit I'll say that was great. And he wasn't a great Christian because he wrote all these epistles, albeit I'll have to declare that's pretty great. He was a great Christian because he constantly was in the ministry, not in the business, but in the ministry of mentoring and teaching people through his life how to live for Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something tonight. We're to live our life and model our life and mentor our life in spite of everything we do wrong that people might learn in us. So tonight, we see Paul teaching us about through his life. Number one, I want you to notice we see Paul on display. Paul on display. Look at verse 9. For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last as it were pointed to death. Now when you and I read that, we might correctly, we might misinterpret what he's saying there. Paul draws from an illustration of that day that powerfully capsulizes what he just said there. Because in the second part of verse 9, he says, For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. Now, take a moment right now and circle or underline or highlight the word spectacle. <clears throat> he uses the word spectacle right there in the middle of that chapter to describe what he saw himself as and where God had put him. And the word spectacle is the Greek word theatron. We get our word theater from that. It's a very powerful word. And 
The word theatrin described the amphitheater, the Roman Colosseum, the place where the government, the Roman government, provided for free entertainment to the people. To keep the people out of trouble, the government provided free entertainment. Much of that entertainment in that amphitheater or the Colosseum was what they would basically <clears throat> get the, the, the best contenders and have competitions or the games there. And so these events would be advertised for weeks, and the whole place would be filled out. The whole place would be filled out. It's kind of like sporting events today. They advertise the big events weeks in advance, months in advance, because they want to get the crowd. And then once they get the crowd, they sell out, and they make it available, uh, you know, that you can buy it through cable TV to watch and things like that. But in those days, basically, they would have major events. They would advertise the names of these events, and the Greeks had a, they had a Greek type of fighting called Pancration, if you know anything about that. And Pancration was a very, very deadly Greek sport. It was their version of martial arts, and they would do Pancration, they would do boxing, they would do wrestling, things of that nature there. And then when that was all done, you know, the main events would be in the beginning, and that was all done, then what we would call the lesser events would come out, but the people didn't leave. Following these events... The weakest prisoners they had in prison would be brought out. And these prisoners would be brought out right in the middle, and that they had these hungry beasts, lions if you would, lions if you would, that they would basically throw these prisoners out in the middle of the arena for them to fight with these, these animals, or literally to be the food that the animals need. If you have to imagine this, the people there during that day, they were so hardened and they were so hungry for entertainment, and they become so ardent, they'd literally watch animals, wild animals, wild beasts, kill these prisoners and even eat them right there on the spot, if you can imagine that. The beast would make easy sport of these prisoners. The word spectacle is where that comes from. Go back to verse 9. For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last. In other words, Paul said this. We are like these prisoners who are the last on the entertainment list that have been literally thrown to the beast. He has set us forth as the apostles as a point of death. In other words, he was saying, we're a spectacle. We are so despised. We are so disrespected that we see ourselves, me and the other apostles, that God has allowed us to be set forth last as their point of death. Now, to get some meaning to that, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes a statement. And I'm going to get ahead of myself for a little bit here. But he makes a statement. He says, for, we, for I have fought with the wild beasts at Ephesus. Same idea. The wild beasts at Ephesus. The idea of a spectacle here, Paul is saying, is that we're nobodies. We're just like those prisoners thrown at the lions, and the lions killed them. We're nobody. We're not big shots who deserve worldly attention. He was saying, we're a spectacle. We've been put on a disrespectful, undeserving, and yet we'll take it, exhibit before men, and we're, we're basically, they're roasting us and tearing us apart, and he said, just basically, we're humble servants of God. Now, that being said, let's look at what he means by all this in verses 7 to 13, when he, Paul was on display. Number one, notice in verse 7, there's a valid inquiry. In verse 7, he said, who maketh thee to differ from another? He asked some questions. 
you know, he's dealing with believers, he said in verse 6, were puffed up one towards the other. And so he has some very valid questions to ask. Who makes you different from somebody else? Who made you better than somebody else? Hey, you know what? We could help our church so well if we would just have this attitude. I'm not better than anybody else. I'm not better than anybody else. In fact, anything, I'm worse than everybody else. He said, what makes you think you're better than others? What maketh thee to differ or think you're better than others? He has a second question. And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? He said, what do you possess that was not a gift to you? Hey, I think that, this is a good checkup time right now, folks. What do you have that God didn't give you? For us to take our, especially if we're in the secular world, you are not a self-made man or self-made woman. God puts you there. God gave you what you have. I don't care how bad your bank account is. I don't care how well your stock portfolio is done during COVID-19 and all this kind of stuff. Let me tell you something. God gave that to you. God gave that to you. God gives us the ability to acquire wealth. Listen, the day you start thinking, and if you're living there right now, you need to get out of it right now. He said, who gave it thee? What hast thou that didst not receive? And he said, and if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou thou hadst not received it? Why do you act as if God didn't give it to you? So he makes a valid inquiry. Our attitude should be like John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. When it comes to serving the Lord, we must always ask questions about ourselves and say, Lord, help me get out of the equation. Help me to serve others, even though it's difficult. And let me tell you tonight, if you haven't figured this out, serving Jesus is a joy. And you ought to say amen to that right now. Serving Jesus is a joy. But I'm going to tell you, and I've got a, I've got a, I've got a message coming up on this, Serving Jesus also means you're going to be persecuted. And the worst persecution is not going to come from the people on the outside. It's going to come from the people on the inside because there's nothing that you're ever going to do right. And you better get used to that because you're going to, get, you're going to have criticisms coming away. And let me tell you tonight, what goes around comes around. You're going to reap what you sow there. We see a valid inquiry. Secondly, we see a vain imagination. Now, Paul... <clears throat> It's dealing with puffed up believers. And you got to remember in the city of Corinth, that was a well-to-do church. Corinth was a city where there were good jobs. There were good professions. People made good money. And these were middle class, upper middle class, and better people that were getting saved at Corinth. And unfortunately, some of those believers after Paul left thought of their careers more than they thought about Christ. And they elevated their jobs and didn't elevate Jesus. And they gave glory to their gold but didn't give glory to God. Notice verse 8. Paul hits it right on the nose of what they thought about themselves, and he adds some holy sarcasm to that to uh, expand upon uh, his relationship to them. He said, now you are full, you are rich, you have reigned as kings without us. He said, you know what? You've got it made. You're doing well. You're boasting about your spiritual gifts You're boasting you know more about the Holy Spirit than the Holy Spirit has in deity. You're boasting about your sins. He talked about that in chapter 5. You're boasting about 
your personality following or the people following you. And he says, you're full. You're rich. He says, since we've been gone, you've been reigning like kings without us. Now, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a, there's a, there, there's a, there's a hidden message behind that. He's being very cryptic with that. He's saying, you're running the church. You're unbiblically running the church like kings. And he says, and he sarcastically says, you know, I really wish you were kings so we could reign with you. Because that was not what Paul's mind was set. He said, I didn't put, set myself on a pedestal. I didn't set myself on a beam of seat. I wish, I would to God that you were kings so we could reign with you. Many years ago, I went to a pastor's conference. And at this conference, they, there was a national preacher that was going to speak that night. National, international. Extremely motivational. Very powerful preacher. Very persuasive. I still remember that night where I sat on the first floor. And I still remember him getting up. He cleared his throat. He opened his Bible. And he either was in 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles. And read a passage. He didn't even preach from the passage. He read the passage and made an unbiblical comparison. There were kings and subjects there. This is what he told the the preachers and the people in attendance there. He made an unbiblical comparison. He said, now pastors, let me tell you where I'm going with this tonight. Your kings and the people in your church, they're your subjects. And I'm going to teach you tonight how your subjects need to bow to you. Now, if it was today, I would have got up and walked out. At that moment in time, I was just kind of stupefied. I didn't really know what was going on. I'm wondering, where's he going with this? But knowing what I know today, I would have got up and walked out of that. I left that meeting just very confused and wondering, why did he even bring that kind of a mess up? That wasn't even, that wasn't even a, Bible, a bit proper interpretation of the Scripture. That was so unbiblical. And I, and I thought, after, afterwards, I thought, I wonder how many pastors are actually going to go to their church and do that kind of thing. Paul is saying this, the opposite. He said, you know what, we're not there. By the way, pastors are not kings over their churches. But by the same token, hey, listen, by the same token, laymen, and I don't care what your position is, laymen are not kings in the church either. Eat on that for a minute. And so he says, you have a vain imagination. He says, you, you have reigned as kings. But then he says something else in verses 10 to 13. He says, you have a vain imagination. He said, you, he said, he made a valid inquiry. But notice in verses 10 to 13, he makes a voracious interpretation. He gives a very truthful interpretation You might be kings without us, but I'll tell you what we really are. Now, you know, when kids growing up, they like to compare things, you know. When I was a boy growing up, boys like to talk about what their daddies did, you know, to get one up. Or they like to talk about what they did on Saturdays, get one up on the other. Paul was not trying to get one up on them. In verse 9, he said, we are a spectacle to the world to angels and to men. He said, as far as we're concerned, we are an exhibit as a, as a, as a prisoner that's about to eat, be eaten by a lion. So notice what Paul does here. He transitions and he tells them and tells you and I a very sobering, a very humbling understanding and interpretation of how he really saw himself as a servant of God. Now I want you to listen to me tonight. I want you to listen to me tonight. 
you and I, regards where we're serving God in church. And I'm looking for the day our church can reassemble and people can serve God. We need to do well this evening to understand we have not arrived. We have not arrived. Paul said this, we are fools for Christ's sake. I almost want to preach the message that God put in my heart while I was out meditating this afternoon. I'm so fired up on it. We are fools for Christ's sake. The world considers us as fools if you're living for God, if you're a true servant of Jesus Christ. Living for Jesus is considered foolish. Giving to the HBC Cares COVID-19 special offering, some might think some of us who have given were foolish. Starting churches is foolish. Living by faith is foolish to the world. Making sacrifices is foolish to the world. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool to give that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. Paul said, we are fools. He said, but you are wise. You act like you're wise because you don't suffer. You act like you're wise because you've got one up on the apostles. You act like you're wise because you protect your neck but compromise the gospel while doing so. In verse 10, he goes on by saying, you are weak, we are weak, but you are strong. I mean, Paul just goes down this list here and says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise. We are weak, but you are strong. The Greeks gloried in men's strength. The Greeks gloried in man's wisdom. Paul was seen as weakly. Some of the decisions he made was seen as being very foolish. Some of the things he did was seen as being seen very foolish. Paul later said in 2 Corinthians, but when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I'm going to tell you tonight, until you've gone down the valley of weakness, you're never going to learn how to get the strength you need from God. You're never going to learn what it means to lean on the everlasting arm. In verse 10, he says something else. You are honorable, but we are despised. Isn't that kind of interesting? You're, touting, you're, 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 you're flouting your peacock tail. You're puffing your chest out. You are honored, and we are despised. He goes on in verse 12. In verse 11, he describes his financial circumstances as a church planter. We hunger, thirst, naked. And what he meant by naked was this. They didn't have a change of clothing. It was almost they were so bare, thin on their clothes, you could see their inner garment. And by the way, and I'll, I'll, I'm preaching about this on Sunday morning, whenever you see the term naked, in most of those cases, naked, when someone says they were naked, it didn't mean they were out in the buff. It wasn't that mean they were bare. It means basically they were walking literally in their inner garment or their underwear, if you would. That was their version of underwear, it was their inner garment. I mean, there was modesty. By the way, let me just say this tonight. The Jews dressed modestly. And uh, he says, we hunger and thirst, naked, we're buffeted. We have no certain dwelling place. I mean, basically he's saying, hey, you know what? I want you to get what it's really like. Faith promise had not originated that day. 
They didn't know day by day where they would sleep. They were homeless. They didn't have meals. They didn't have support. There were many times the churches forgot about them. There were many times love offerings weren't taken up. There were many times that he and the other apostles suffered privation. They didn't walk around like big shots. They didn't wear the clothes of the Pharisees. They dressed decent, and they dressed clean, and they were proper, but they didn't dress in ostentatious wear like the Pharisees. I mean, these apostles of Jesus Christ, these servants of God, that's why he started verse 1. He said, let a man so account of us. He said, man, I'm going to tell you straight up. We hunger, we thirst, we're naked, we're buffeted, we have no certain dwelling place. He says, hey, you want to be in the ministry? You better expect privation. He said in verse 12, we labor working with our own hands. He's talking about his tent making. He wasn't ashamed of doing that. In a long time, Paul had a difficult time because in those days, everything's just, just unfolding at that time. He had a very difficult time. In fact, he talks about it in chapter 9. He talks about chapter 9. He had a difficult time taking offerings from the church at Corinth because there were some, I believe there were some there that were critical of him taking offerings. They were critical of taking care of the servants of God. And so Paul said, he taught them. He says, listen, you need to take care of God's servants. He says, you know, he says, you need to take care of them. In fact, he goes on later and told Timothy, he says, a servant of God, they who labor in the word and doctrine are worthy of double honor, he said there. Because they, they, were, they were underappreciated, they were underserved, they were being, all these things, they were, I mean, the servants of God were being underpaid, everything there. And so he says, we labor work with our own hands. Verse 13, notice this. Being reviled. Criticize. He says, you know what? We just bless. Hey, if you were reviled, what would you do? What would you do? I mean, being reviled, someone's getting your face. I mean, the Bible says about Jesus, he was reviled. Reviled not again. You know, if you're at home and you're going through a spat with somebody at home, you know the best thing you can do? Don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. If you get reviled, bless. The Bible says being reviled, you reviled not. Verse 12, being persecuted, we suffer it. Verse 13, being defamed. You know the word defamed is the word blasphemo. You know what blasphemo means? Blasphemy. Being evil spoken of. He says being evil spoken of, we entreat. He says, in other words, we're begging. We're just asking God for special mercy. We're asking these people to stop. Okay? That's what he said there. Verse 13, notice verse 13, very strong. Verse 13, we are made as the filth of the world and as the offscoring of all things unto this day. Wow! Are you really serving God? Are you really a true servant of God? He said, you know what? We are treated like the refuse and the garbage of this world. And here's how people treat us. They treat us like the scrapes off their plate or for garbage can lid. Well, you know, someone would say, watching by light, she'd say, does that really go on? It goes on in every church goes on in every church. Number one, Paul was on display. That you might learn in us a spectacle. That you might learn in us a spectacle. That God has set apart us, the apostles, last, even unto death. Are you willing to serve God even to the place where you're going to be thrown to the lions? Number two, he said that you might learn in us that you might learn in us. Paul said we might need to learn by watching him as he was on display. Number two, would you write this down? He said, number two, we see Paul as a dad. 
You ever see that commercial? The guy says, hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Now, I'm using Dad because I've got to line up all the words. But actually, the word he uses is Father. Verse 14. And I appreciate Paul's spirit. It's so helpful. I mean, you guys who want to be in the ministry, this is practical theology right here. I write not these things to shame you. I write not these things to shame Hey, you know what? This, this whole thing, shaming people and all that kind of junk there, long before that even came about, the Bible already talked about it. I'm telling you, the Bible addresses everything. He said to write these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, you want to underline that phrase, as my beloved sons, I warn you. I caution you. I caution you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. You know what Paul's saying there? These Grecians, they brought their culture into their Christianity. Can I remind you tonight? You're to take your Christianity into the culture and not bring the culture into Christianity. And Paul said this, you know, Apollos is my favorite preacher. And some of you said, Paul is my favorite preacher. And some of you said here, you know, this guy's my favorite preacher. And some others here, they're getting on the internet in our church and they're saying, this is my favorite preacher. And so forth, so forth. He says, though you have 10,000 instructors, some of you like your favorite commentator. Common potato is the southerner would say, amen. He says, though you have 10,000 instructors, he said this, yet, yet, have you not many fathers? Now, Paul is getting very sentimental and very personal here. He's saying here, listen, for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. He said to those Corinthian believers, I want you to understand something. When I got there, there were this many people in the church because there were no salvations. I stayed at it. And people got saved. And the names are given to us. And they're, they're those we don't even know about. He says, he says, you got saved through the ministry that the Lord allowed me to have at that church. And he says, you, though you have 10,000 instructors, and I'm not there right now, he says, yet have you not many fathers in Christ. Now, he said, for in Christ Jesus I've begotten you through the gospel. He's basically bearing his heart because he's brokenhearted for all the nasty things they've said about him. He said, look, I didn't lead you to Christ. The Holy Spirit saved you. The Holy Spirit saved your soul. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again for the dead. He says, you were begotten through the gospel. I, didn't, I, did not, I did not, you didn't get saved through me. He says, but God gave me the privilege to have that part in your life. And as your spiritual father, he said, I brought you to Christ. I've taught you, even right now I'm teaching you. And he says, though you have been 10,000 instructors in Christ, he says, yet have you not many fathers. And so he writes to them to warn them. He says, as beloved sons, in the previous verse, as beloved sons, I warn you. Now, let me tell you what Paul's not saying through all this. He wasn't telling them to call him Father Paul. 
Because he knew very well the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 23, 9. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Listen, that is a man-made dogma that calls a pastor a father or calls someone in the clergy a father. No man is to be your father. There's only one father you have, in, and that's the one we have in heaven. That's our heavenly father. But Paul is saying, as a spiritual father, I had the privilege of nurturing you. Now, what's he doing through that? He's speaking to them about the spiritual authority he has. Now, you understand what I'm saying tonight. The image of a father is speaking about the authority the individual has over children. I have three children I love very much. Man, my joy in my world is my wife, my children, and my little granddaughter. I love them. I love having family get-togethers more than ever before. And unfortunately, with COVID-19, just we haven't gotten together much. And as a father, the greatest honor children give to their, their father and their mother, just honoring them. That's what the Bible says, honor thy father and mother. It's just being respectful. So Paul uses the analogy of a father to get a hold of them. Paul, remember, said that you might learn in us. Now notice Paul speaks to him as a father. Number one, we see a father's concern. Now until you're a dad, and you've been a dad for a little period of time, God instills with a father a paternal instinct. God designed the role of the father to be multifaceted. As we study how God our Father works in our life, we see a model for how to be a spiritual father. Now, let me quote to you tonight, 1 Thessalonians 2.11. I'm going to give you some thoughts. And by the way, every father right now, be ready to jot down some quick thoughts I'm going to give you. In 1 Thessalonians 2.11, Paul did the same thing. He told those Thessalonian believers that, that his treatment of them was as a father. And he says, as you know how we exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you as a father does his children. Now, discipling, mentoring, pastoring, growing others, we need to exhort, comfort, and charge. If you can remember that, you'll go a long way. You're not to intimidate. You're not to be harsh. You're not to be mean. You're not to exasperate, and I'll talk about that in a minute. He says you're to exhort, you're to comfort, and charge. Now I just saved you $100 in book fees buying all the books out there if you just follow that. And notice what he says here. Let me give you some thoughts. Dads, I hope you write down. Ladies, you help your, your husbands out. If they don't write it down, you write it down. He's saying in the midst of all that, I wrote about five or six things down. Number one, he's talking about a father's wow. When you exhort, comfort, and charge, you're basically saying, wow, you did a great job. Wow, you did a great job. Little Evie comes over and sees us, and she does something. We say, great job. And if dad is probably the, needs to be the best coach, the best motivator, the best one to inspire, and saying, wow, you did a great job. He inspires, he comforts, he charges. A father's wow. Notice a father's will, work. Dads, men, 
Our greatest need is to instill confidence. You might be a very confident individual, but God may bless you with a child that needs a lot of help in growing in their confidence. You have to instill confidence. You have to give them stability. You've got it as part of the training process. Teach them good habits. What they do with it, it becomes their business or their problem if they don't follow it. But father's wow, a father's work, a father's will. Now, a father's will must coincide with God's will and not get ahead of God's will. And a father's will means this. A concerned father gives direction in making right choices. A concerned father gives direction in helping his child make great choices. Now, here's what Paul's doing there. He says, though you have 10,000 instructors, yet have you not many fathers. You know what he's doing through this? He's being a dad to them. He's trying to wow them, and he does. He's doing the work of a father. He's showing the will of a father because later on, notice verse 16. Verse 16, he makes a statement. He says, wherefore, I beseech you, be ye fathers of me. That's a father's will. There's a father's wisdom. Paul said in Philippians 4.11, Proverbs 4.11, not to Paul. Solomon said in Proverbs 4.11, I have taught thee in the way of wisdom. A father's watch. He's why he wows them. He does his work. He does his will. He does his wisdom. But he watches over them. Fathers are concerned for the safety of their children. Sometimes young people, sometimes those being discipled, sometimes those younger, you might feel that Someone who gives cautions and be careful of that. They're not telling you you're dumb. And they don't think you can make a wise decision. You know what they're concerned about? They're just concerned for your safety. They're concerned for your safety. You know, pastors, pastors all the time, they, they follow what Acts chapter 12, 20 says. Wolves come in. You have to warn them. And sometimes people say, well, why are you preaching about that again? Why are you bringing this up? Why are you talking about Calvinism? Why are you talking about hyper-grace? And why are you talking about loss of salvation, people that have, they're lacking eternal security? And why are you talking about this and talking about that? Because we're concerned about your safety. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 1, for, for, he says, for me to write these things to you are not grievous, but for you it is safe. So they're concerned about safety. So there's a father's concern. He's writing them because he's concerned. Hey, secondly, there's a father's correction. Now, if you're a good father, you have to correct. You have to know when to correct, but you've got to correct. And by the way, Paul didn't, Paul didn't start out in chapter 1. He didn't drop the bomb on him. He gave him a lot of opportunity to change. They already knew what they needed to do, but they, they didn't change. So he went to chapter 4 to drop the bomb on him. And he said in verse 14, would you notice this? I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Verse 17. I'll come back to verse 17 in a minute. Correction is the means where a father corrects bad behavior. Now, how do you correct bad behavior? You just give him a tongue lashing? Do you say, didn't you get it the first time? Or do you model it? Do you come alongside like the Holy Spirit does to us, the parakaleo, and say, let me help you with this. Correction is the means which a father takes active management in the child's development and welfare. And Paul's writing to, remember now, he's writing to babes in Christ, his sons in the Lord. So let me give you some thoughts about a father's correction. First of all, there's the extreme of wrath. Ephesians 6, 4. 
And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. What does he mean by that? Two extremes. On one extreme, high authoritarian. You got a lot of rules, but no relationship. You're criticizing. You're always beating up. Can't you get it right? How come you didn't get an A in this? How come you didn't do this? How come you didn't get a home run? How come you didn't make first string? How come you didn't kick the ball? How come you're so clumsy? How come you're so dirty? How come you're this? That is provoking a child to wrath. And by the way, if you take it out on each other in your home, you're teaching your children to provoke their children one day to wrath. There's the other extreme. Extremely high love. Extremely high love leads to permissiveness, non-management. I love my kid. I let them do whatever they want. I love my kid. I let them find out for themselves. You know, it's kind of like every time I talk to some new family, I say, well, I let my kid, my kid's four years old. I let my kid decide if they want to go to church. Can I tell you tonight, if you've got a four-year-old, they can't make a decision to go to church. I mean, 16-year-olds can't even make a decision to go to church. Come on. But bring them up. A father's correction avoids the extreme wrath. I'm going to tell you something. You're going to lose your kids, sir. And you're going to lose your kids, mom. You're provoking them to wrath. Now, you kids watching tonight, don't you take on that and use it as a weapon against your parents. That's wrong. You're going to incorrectly interpret what I said to your advantage. Then secondly, Paul, not only speaks about a father's correction through the extreme of wrath, and avoiding the extreme of wrath, but he talks about the exercise in words. Notice verses 19 to 21. Now, Paul wasn't full of hot air. He said in verse 18, actually, verse 18, some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. Because he said, I'm going to come. They said, well, he hasn't come yet. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? We would do what we want. We're kings. And Paul said, verse 19, and I, bear, bear in mind, he said this with spirit of meekness. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will. And will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. I want to see whether or not the dunamis, God's power, can help you get it right. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So Paul now is using the right words and proper words to get to them. And then he said this in verse 21. Now what will ye? What will ye? Shall I come unto you with the rod? He's saying, you know what? Is it your desire to come to beat the fire out of you with a stick? Or do you want me to come to you in love and in the spirit of meekness? Christian friend, I, if I could give you a Bible study tonight, you ought to study the spiritual virtue and the fruit of meekness. Especially in dealing with correcting others or dealing with people. Because I'll tell you what, if you don't have a spirit of meekness, you're going to burn a lot of bridges, and one day what you sow, you're going to reap. And Paul said, well, I come to you with a rod or with love and with the spirit of meekness. So Paul talks about a father's correction. But he says something else. Notice verse 17. 
He talks about the extreme of wrath. He talks about the exercise in words. But notice in verse 18, he has an exemplary worker. Now, he's kind of playing on things. Because remember, he said, as my beloved sons, I warn you. So in verse 18, he tells them about a spiritual brother that they need to hear from. They've forgotten about this brother. They met him before. His name was Timotheus. And he said in verse 18, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who's my beloved son. I like what Paul's doing there. He said, you know what? I'm speaking to as a father to sons. And he said, so I sent Timothy to you in my absence. And I've got a whole thing I'll tell you about Timothy. You read Philippians chapter 2. He says, I have no other man like-minded that will naturally care for your state. Paul's, Timothy's the only one that understood Paul's mind and heart that he could send to represent him. I understand that. And so he says here, I sent to you a fellow brother in Christ, a fellow son, another person that also I led to Christ, who is faithful in the Lord. And he says, that he shall bring you to remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. That's kind of like I remember... I remember as a kid growing up, I was kind of, I, I was sowing some wild oats in, 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 in seventh or eighth grade. I forgot what grade it was. And I had a cousin. My dad said, hey, why don't you go spend a week down there with your cousin? And, I, and, I, and we, were, we were close. I mean, we, I wish they were close. We, we knew each other, respected each other well. I never spent time with him. And he said, you know, he's, he's a good guy. He's, you know, he's just very respectful to his mom and so forth. I think he'll do you good. And I said, okay, dad, I'll do it. And I spent time with my cousin there. And we had a wonderful time, he and his brother and myself. I, I mean, I saw some things these guys did that really helped me a lot. And I have to attribute the fact, probably helped, helped get some of the wild oats out of me during that time. Because I was just really, just kind of really, really, not, not a really good kid on stuff. And Paul was saying this, you know what? I, I've sent Timothy down there to you, first of all, because he's faithful. He's faithful. He's proven himself. He's demonstrated himself. He's got my heart on matters. And he says, I've sent him there, number one, to remind you of my ways which are in Jesus Christ. Now, that's important. I've said to the church for many times, if you don't know my heart, don't be my spokesman. If you don't know my heart, don't be my spokesman. If you don't mean it, don't speak for me. I can speak for myself. And he said here, I, I, I sent Timothy to bring your remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ. Now I want you to understand something. Paul said, Timothy's going to show, remind you of my methods, my philosophy, my practices, Everything I taught you, he says, he's going to bring you in remembrance of those things. And he couches it by saying, my ways which be in Christ. He wasn't injecting his preferences. He was saying, everything I did, whether you agreed with it or not, everything I did was not malicious. Everything I did was in Christ. And he says, as I teach everyone in every church. In other words, he says, you know what? What I taught you, I'm teaching everyone else. Now, since he went, when he left Corinth, when he left Corinth, he went to Ephesus. Um, he may have gone to some of the other the churches in Turkey. Uh, he went back and made a report back there at his sending church. I mean, he went around. He, he, you know, the Bible says he went to Persia, uh, places like that. And he, and he says, he says, as I teach everywhere in every church. And so he speaks about Timothy to do exactly what Paul would, what wanted him to do. And so all Paul is saying here, he says, he says I want, that you might learn in us. 
He said, I want you to learn to know. So he says, I can't physically be there, so I sent somebody on my behalf to teach you these things. And that's what discipling's all about there. He said, I just want you to know that. So Paul says that you might learn in us, that you might learn in me as I'm on display, that you might learn of me as a dad, and as I close very quickly tonight, that you might learn in me as a discipler. Look at verse 16, and we're done. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. He did not say that because he thought he was perfect. And he did not say that because he was trying to be God in their life. He was trying to give them a model. Discipling is modeling. It's showing people the way. Leaders know the way, they go the way, and they show the way. You're not a good helper if you don't show the way. And so Paul says here, okay, my last thing I want you to know, I want you to learn of me as your discipler, as the one that taught you the word of God, to allow to live for Jesus Christ. How did he do that? Very quickly tonight. First of all, he wanted them, he gave them a command in verse 16, he wanted them to model his humility. The, the, the essence of 1 Corinthians 4 is dealing with the church and individuals that were puffed up about themselves, about man worship, hyper grace, unbiblical doctrines, and a bad spirit against Paul and other gospel preachers. Paul said they acted like they were kings. They were judgmental of the servants of God. They majored on comparing the servants of God. So here's what Paul said. If you read everything here, Verses 10 to 13, what did Paul talk about there? 10, 10 to 13 there? He talked about the hardships of ministry. Model his humility. In verse 1, he said, we're the ministers of Christ. We are under rowers. We're in the galley. We're rowing with everybody else. You know what happens in galleys? They have an oar master. You know who the oar master is? He carries the whip. He holds the horn. He yells at everyone, you're not, too, you're not fast enough, or slow down. You're getting too weak. Pull your weight. And if they don't pull up, he whips them. He says, you know what? We're just like those under rowers. He said, we're stewards. Now, I've watched Christians over the years flaunt stewardship as if they're some big shot. Well, I'm just being a good steward of God. That's not what Paul meant by stewardship. When he used the word stewardship, he spoke about overseeing the things of God with fear and trepidation, that he was just a manager, not an owner. A lot of us act like these Corinthians. We think we're kings and we think we're owners. We're not owners. He said we're spectacles. We're fools. We, we have privation. We're weak, despised, defined, reviled, and persecuted. We're the filth of the world and the offscoring of all things. You know what he's saying as a disciple? He says, I want you to model my humility. We talk about humility. We can teach about humility. We can alliterate all we want. But Paul said, you need to model. And let me say tonight, unless you and I are going through verses 10 to 13, none of us are qualified to teach or preach about humility. Secondly, he said, I want you to model my heart. I want you to model my heart. Look at verse 15. 
He had a heart for these people. He had a heart for souls. Where's your heart tonight? Do you have a heart for winning souls? Your heart for reaching our community? Do you have a heart for making disciples? Or are you more interested in knowing how many people are following you? Are you more concerned about how large your attendance is? Or are you more concerned, are they growing in Christ? Beloved, I remind you tonight, the product is not just the number. I want to know what's beneath the number. I want to know, are they growing? Are they changing? Are they conscientious? Are they convicted? Are they making decisions? Have a heart for those who have strayed. Have a heart for those who are weak. You need to go back to my message I preached from 1 Thessalonians 5 where it talks about the people who have a fainting heart and how to care for those people and nurture them. Paul is just saying, I want you to model my heart. Have a heart for God. Have a heart for souls. Have a heart for his church. Lastly, Paul said, I want you to model my holiness. He said in chapter 3, verse 16, verse 17, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now let me tell you tonight, I'm done. Carnality, division, strife, and envy, that is not holiness. A judgmental character, there's no holiness in that. You see, where holiness is, you're going to find that every attribute of God is an emanation of the holiness of God. His love is holy. His mercies are holy. His forgiveness is holy. His righteousness is holy. On and on and on. It's holy. That's why I love what the angelic beings in heaven say, the four beasts in heaven, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. You're the temple of God. Paul said, you know what? That you might learn in us. That you might learn in us to be on display. That you might learn of me that I'm on display. That you might learn of me as your father, as your dad. That you might learn of me as, in, 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 as a disi- your discipler. That you might learn of me. That you might learn of us. And I see he said, I said Timothy to you that he'll remind you of those things that you learned of me that are in Christ. And so tonight, are you learning in us? Are you learning in me? Are you learning the Bible? Are you going beyond head knowledge? Are you maturing to the meat of the word? Can you, are you at the place where the Bible says, Great peace of they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them? Are you? Are you? Have you forgotten the roots that you started with? Have you forgotten how you were, you were your, your spiritual birthing? Have you forgotten those who invested in your life? Have you forgotten they're still investing in your life? Have you forgotten? Well, tonight Paul said, I bring you to remembrance of my ways in Christ that you might learn of us. I pray tonight that we would profit from Paul's words and please God. And honor him.